Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. A prominent doctrine that is largely absent from churches and preaching in the United States today is the topic of persecution or tribulation. And that omission is easily understood because it is not a feel-good subject. And if anything can be said about the 21st century church in the United States, it's about feeling good. But we, to our own detriment, if not peril, ignore the doctrine of persecution or tribulation. Just a casual, cursory look at the contents of the books of the New Testament would yield this piece of information. They all deal with the inevitability of being persecuted and finding ourselves in some degree of tribulation as followers of Christ. And we must be people who give some attention to it. And as we work our way through the book of John, we come to such a moment. I'm sure you caught that as we were reading from the 15th chapter of John. And we want to know how we are to negotiate and navigate the treacherous waters of persecution. Don't you want to know how that is something that we have been given clear direction as to how to do that? And this passage of Scripture is one of the better passages in the words of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at verse 18 to introduce this topic. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now there would be a certain degree of comfort, I think, I hope, for you that Jesus was hated before you and me. And the degree to which Jesus was hated is infinitely greater than the way that we might be hated. And what's interesting here, it does not occur when we read this in English, but this is actually the main meaning. I'm going to change one word, and I'm legitimately changing it. It's not just by whim that I change it. It's because this is exactly what is meant by the original statement. Since the world hates you, not if, but since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And the verb which is translated has hated that Jesus uses in relationship to the way that the world views Him is a world which means there was a moment in time when the world began to hate Jesus. We know earlier in the Gospel of John, in the prologue as it's called, this statement is said about Jesus. Speaking of Him as the true light, said the true light is coming into the world and it is enlightened every man. He came into the world and the world did not know Him. He came to His own people, including His own household. 
His brothers did not know him until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mary knew, obviously, who Jesus was. She was introduced to that being her role to play in the kingdom and economy of God by Gabriel, the angel who declared to her that she would be the one who would carry God's Son and her Son as well. So what we see here that Jesus was hated from the get-go, and since that was true of Him and we associate with Him, we experience the same kind of treatment. Let's look at the reasons the world hates Christ's followers. There are at least three that are given by Jesus in this passage of Scripture. The first reason is that people who are followers of Jesus Christ are no longer part of the world. Pause with me a moment. Think about what Paul writes to the Colossians in the first chapter of Colossians. In the 13th verse, he says, God rescued us, speaking of believers, from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of His beloved Son. We were in the world, we were of the world before Christ came and died for us, and then the Father rescued us and transplanted us into the kingdom of God. But we are no longer part of that darkness of the domain of the world. Here's a way to think properly about the concept of the world. Mankind organized in rebellion against God. And in 1 John 5, 19, we are told who the organizer is, and he still orchestrates the world. He's none other than the devil himself. It is his world, and that's why it's a dark world. The darkness is overwhelming in that realm that's governed by Satan. And so when we come to know Christ, we're no longer a part of that world system. Let's turn to 1 Peter, keep your place here, and go to 1 Peter, and we're going to look at two verses in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. Verses 3 and 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. That is, they criticize you. Isn't that true? Some of you remember the time before you came to know Jesus Christ, and you may have seen some description of your own life. You may not have been as raw, rowdy, and raucous as those words describe, but as you remember before you came to Christ, you thought like a worldling because you were in that setting, and the Bible is not flattering in its description of us before we come to know Christ. Jesus was very blunt. He says, you are of your father, the devil. God was not our Father. So we were doing things that were part of 
the world system governed and ruled by Satan himself. So we need to understand that one of the reasons the world rejects us and hates us and mistreats us is because we no longer do the things that they enjoy doing. That does not mean that we're to separate ourselves from people who are still worldlings. Otherwise, they would not have an example of someone and a mouthpiece for Christ who can share the good news of Jesus and be exhibit A for them as to what a person like that is and behaves like. Look at another reason the world hates Christ's followers. It's because Jesus chose them out of the world. Look at the second part of chapter 15, verse 19. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice how Jesus uses the term world five times in this verse 19. And He's already told us about we're not of the world anymore. That's why He finds us being hated by the world. And But also He adds to that, He chose us out of the world. Now, we saw last week, if you'll look back at verse 16, Jesus introduces this topic to the apostles. He said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. So Jesus chose you and me. And this does not set well with the world. The world resents it that we could say we've been chosen by God. They think it's bragging about who we are. Uh, to the contrary, it's humbling to think that God would choose me. I can say this regarding myself. Why would you choose me? I've asked that question. If I've asked it once, I've asked it a thousand times to the Lord. Why, Lord, would you choose me to be your child when there was nothing that would appeal to you to verify that I was one that should be chosen. But in His sovereign grace, the Lord has chosen us. The doctrine of election is one that is divisive in the church of Jesus Christ. I can understand why. Because we do not read the Bible as closely as we should, and we still want to take a bit of responsibility for our own salvation. But the doctrine of election would indicate that were it not for God, Jesus says this in John chapter 6. Let me find the exact statement He makes. Jesus speaks of how all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And he goes on to say that no one can come to me, in verse 44 of chapter 6, unless the Father who sent him draws me, and I will raise him up on the last day. Read the Bible with an open mind to hear what God has to say about the matter of election. And people don't like it. I've probably ruffled about half the people's 
feathers already and bring this to light. But it's not what I say that matters. Do your own ex exploration of the Scripture and you will discover, I believe, if you go with an open heart and open mind, that this is what Jesus teaches and it is how I became a part of the kingdom of God. He chose me. Before the foundation of the world, by the way. That puts it way back in eternity. That's encouraging. And nothing can undo what Christ has done in choosing us. When Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, when He was doing His first tour of Galilee, He had been to several synagogues already, according to Luke chapter 4. He comes to His own hometown synagogue, the one which He undoubtedly had been faithful to attend over and over and over again. When the time came for the reading of the Scripture, He stepped to the place where the scroll was. He wrote, read something from the book of Isaiah speaking of the Messiah, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And then he goes on to speak about two figures who were honored in Israel and to this day who are honored by followers of Abraham and any reader of what we call the Old Testament, quite frankly, Elijah and Elisha. And he really got under the skin of those people. He had baffled them a bit when he had declared that this passage I've just read on the Messiah has been fulfilled in your presence. In fact, some of them were saying to one another, isn't this Joseph's son? And there was a, a rather snideness, bit of snideness in that remark. Joseph's son and the word was pretty well spread by this time that Joseph and Mary had married under less than ideal circumstances. But he's talking about Elijah, and he says, Elijah, when in effect he kept being fed by the ravens during the great famine, and then when the food ran out there and the water ran out, he went not to a Jewish home or city. Rather, he went to a part of that region called Sidon, which was a Gentile area, and he went to a Gentile widow for help. And then he quickly segued to Elisha, the successor of Elijah, and how Elisha, when he healed a leper, which was miraculous, he did not heal a Jewish man of leprosy. However, he healed Naaman, who was a Syrian. And this flew all over those people. And it's an example of how the whole concept of God choosing someone from without the nation of Israel was so untasteful, distasteful to those people. Just like a doctrine of election becomes distasteful in people's mouths today. Here's a third reason. The first reason that the world hates us as we follow Christ is because we're no longer of the world. Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. And, and the second reason is we just said, because Christ chose us, and that doctrine is unappealing to people. Here's the third answer to the question. Why 
the world hates us, it's because the world does not know the one who sent Christ. This is perhaps the more basic reason. And let's look at verse 20 and following. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. How has Jesus in the Gospel of John spoken that about how we can know God? He said in chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we see the connection between Jesus and the Father. Jesus identifies Himself not simply as being one with the Father, but being of the same essence as the Father. You can be one in purpose and still not be one in being. Jesus is both one in purpose and one in being with the Father. And the world hates Jesus because they don't know the one who sent me because they have not known Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. This passage of Scripture goes on to say in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. Follow what we just looked at a moment ago as to why that's true. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Let me stop just a moment. When Jesus says, they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well, the verbs translated have seen and have hated speak of something which happened in history, in past, and still continues at the moment that Jesus is saying what He's saying here. And to this day, it is true. It will be true until the world comes to an end. Because when they hear the words of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, you know, means good news. But there's some bad news, isn't there? Before we can get to the good news, what is the bad news? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks God. Aha! God seeks us. That's what Jesus says about Himself. He says about Himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We were disinterested until the Lord came and turned the light on in us and showed us Himself that He is the way and the truth and the life and the only way that we can come to the Father. So the words of Christ irks. They irk the world. They just burn the world up because they expose man in his rebellion against God. But also, Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, let's look at it again, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. 
So the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus bear witness that He is God, He is the Savior, and He's the only way to know God. And this is not palatable to people who do not know the Lord. Well, let's look at the reaction that this passage of Scripture gives us when it relates to followers of Christ. Verse 25, they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled this, that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus was hated without a cause. And this is prophesied in the 35th Psalm and the 69th Psalm. And Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here and drawing the attention of those who would have undoubtedly known the Psalms and known those things associated with identifying the Messiah. And this would have struck a bell with them. And here's another thing we need to look at in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now we've been introduced to the Helper by Jesus in chapter 14. If you'll turn back over to chapter 14 of John, just as a reminder... Let's look at verses 16 and 17 of John. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. And we learned when we looked at this that the word another is one of two words which translate into our English term another. But the word which Jesus chooses here, He never chose any word without being sure it's the right word. And this word for another means another of the same kind. I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper just like me. Now this begs for clearer understanding of the word helper. This word was a word which was used to describe a person who was secured to be one's defense attorney in a court of law, an advocate. Jesus, in fact, is such an attorney for us. He pleads our case, how frequently? Day and night. He lives to make intercession before the Father. Why does He need to do that? Because we have an accuser. He's described as the accuser of the brothers. He is the ruler of the world. He is Satan. And He accuses us day and night. Every time I sin, Satan accuses me before the Father. Because he knows the Father requires pure holiness. And what does Jesus Christ do? He stands before the Father. It would be true for you and for me. If we know Jesus, we have not a leg to stand on spiritually. But when we come before the Lord, we humble ourselves, we yield ourselves to Him, He gives us eternal life, then from God's perspective, God's not ignorant about anything. 
but from His perspective, in keeping with His plan of salvation, that we are viewed by God as being without sin. Why? Because we are in Christ. We're no longer coming before God on our own merit because we would never be able to stand before Him. And so when the devil accuses us, our helper, our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who was made a propitiation. That means He was the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that would satisfy the holiness of God so that we could be right in relationship to Him. What a helper. And it doesn't, doesn't cost you and me a penny to retain Him as our defense attorney. Wonderful to think of. This word carries with it the idea, literally what the word means, someone who's called alongside of another to help that person. And He is an incredible helper. He encourages us. He exhorts us. When we get out of line, He spanks us, gets us back in line so that we can continue to grow and walk with Him and become more like Him. Well, let's go back now to chapter 15, the last two verses, where Jesus introduces the Helper again. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. Now, herein lies the problem for us. It was Jesus who gave us, He asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job is to do what? To bear witness of Jesus Christ. Every Holy Spirit movement is bound to be a Jesus movement. The focal point of a Holy Spirit movement is always and only Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus and just as much God as the Father. But His role is one of highlighting the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's the one also who is responsible for the formation of the church. We know about Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit came, and for the first time in history, the Holy Spirit inaugurated a new era in which He comes to indwell everybody who receives Jesus as Lord as a result of the Holy Spirit's putting the spotlight on Jesus and opening our minds and our hearts to know Jesus Christ. I love the Holy Spirit. Do you love the Holy Spirit of God? The Bible says, if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe that He was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. How can we say Jesus is Lord? Well, Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit not only shines the spotlight on Christ and opens us, we have to be born not only of water, Jesus says, we have to be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives birth to us spiritually. He gives birth to the church. And He's the one who creates the fellowship of the church. The last verse of 2 Corinthians says this in a benediction. It speaks of the fellowship of the Spirit. What that means is the fellowship which is created by the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired the biblical writers to give us the Bible. And what Jesus says about the Bible, He says, Your Word, speaking the Father, is truth. The Holy Spirit is so significant to us. But please understand, He puts the spotlight on Jesus because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Please understand that. Get a healthy understanding of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one who bears witness. When Jesus had His farewell with the apostles, He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. Well, Jesus wanted us to understand that we are to be witnesses. The apostles, that was what their marching orders were. Would you agree? And so by association with them, we call it the Great Commission. As we go, we are to make disciples of all nations, and we are to teach them the things that Christ teaches in Scripture. And we are to baptize them as a visible expression of an inward response to the call of Christ in calling us out of death spiritually and out of darkness spiritually and giving us eternal life. And we have this great opportunity. And Jesus says in verse 26, we'll read it for a second time here, you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. There were no better witnesses to bear witness than those men. Those 11 men had been with Jesus. And we can be with Jesus too. He wants us to be, and by virtue of our being with Him, we will become His witnesses. Now, this is what ticks the world off worse than anything else and makes them hate us if we really are walking with Christ, they hate us because we uphold Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us like it was given to the first believers in the formation of the church. We give glory to Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We share Christ. We live in dependence upon Christ. And He ministers His person and His work to others through people like you and me. And the devil doesn't like it. In the book of Romans 15, 20, the Bible says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That 
makes me want to go to Ephesians chapter 6 and enumerating the various aspects of the armor of God, you may recall that one of the aspects of the armor of God is that your feet be fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You've got to put on the boots, as it were, of your work in carrying out God's will by being a witness. It's a way of life. It includes sharing the gospel. And as I mentioned earlier, there's some bad news that has to be shared and embraced by people before they can really receive the good news in its fullness. And that is that Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. We could never get there on our own. It was His work, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and to this day, it's true for us. Do you understand why this bothers people? Because people want, and I'm talking about the people who are in the world now, they, they're not much for nonconformity. Have you noticed that? People are not only trend setters, they are trend consumers, aren't they? And people, they've got to have something that's a new line of clothing or a new type of car or any things like that because that's just the way we are. And it's the way the world is too. It's not simply in the church. For instance, the man who brought the umbrella to England, his name was Jonas Hanway, and Mr. Hanway discovered the umbrella, and it rains cats and rains cats and dogs, doesn't it? In London, if you've ever been to London, it would probably be if you were there more than two hours, you were going to get rained on. It's a little exaggeration, but when he began to walk down the streets of London to try to persuade other Londoners to get an umbrella, he was pelted with rocks and dirt. People didn't like it. Why? Because it was cutting against the grain of their tradition. Also, a man by the name of Aristides, the just as he was called, he was an Athenian. He was perhaps the most well-respected Athenian for a while, but after a while, people grew tired of his being called the just. A vote was called for in that city-state. All the citizens all males, no female citizens. The citizens voted and he was banished from Athens. And one man, in answering as to why, he said, because I just don't like him getting, being called the just. He was not one of the gang, was he? He was set apart. Even Socrates, who was known for getting in people's faces at times about things that weren't right with them, he got ostracized ultimately, didn't he? He was sentenced to death. So we see that's true in the world. I'm not saying the world has no tolerance for nonconformity, but when it comes to the matter of how we know God, this is a whole different ballgame, isn't it? 
how do we have eternal life? We say without apology and with humility, mind you, that Christ is the only way. There is no other way to know God. So as we look into the last part of the passage here, we want to consider how the world reacts. Verse 16, chapter 16 rather, verse 1 says, These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. And if you'll just glance down to the last line of verse 4, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And Jesus wanted to not hide anything from His apostles. He talks about this prior to this particular time of teaching. We could go to Mark chapter 10 on your own time. Look at Mark chapter 10 where He talks about something very much like what we are studying here together from the Gospel of John. But He wanted to give them time to get to know Him and to grow in Him. And He knew that they needed to know this. This is part of His last sermon, if you will, teaching that He gives to them because He knew what was coming for them. And He didn't want them to stumble in the sense of lose their faith when it did arrive. Verse 2 says, They, this would be people of the world, will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now let me stop here just a moment. The people who went to synagogue were religious people, weren't they? They were. Who crucified Christ? Did the sinners crucify Christ? Let me qualify that. Look at me just a moment. I'm putting quotation marks, bracketing the word sinners. And if you read the New Testament, the Gospels, what you discover is that that group of people were the people who flocked to Jesus. Have you noticed that? The lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they were Christ's primary church, if you will, because they knew their own need more than the religious people did because the religious people were trying to parlay their own religious activity into their ticket into heaven, which is impossible, of course. The Bible speaks up in verse 20. I didn't speak about it then, but I want to talk about it now. Jesus says, as He's talked about being hated, he uses another word. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now I'm going to ask you to go with me as we near the end of our time considering this subject to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And we're going to look at the last of the eight Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 10 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Be sure you don't lose, out, lose the phrase for the sake of righteousness. It's really important. What did Christ mean regarding persecution in this particular beatitude and throughout His teachings? You're not persecuted because you're offensive. 
Nowhere, I mean on purpose offensive. Let me be careful about that. We will be offensive because of our following Christ. Nowhere does the New Testament give the impression that the normal Christian life is to be obnoxious. We are not to be obnoxious. In fact, Colossians 4, 6, Paul writes, let your conversation, it means not your speech only, but the way of life, it includes your speech, let your conservation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. We're not to withhold the truth, but there's a way you can relate to people and speak to people that doesn't put them on the defensive immediately, isn't there? Use some tact in the way you approach people, is what the Scripture says. When Jesus talks about the reason for persecution, He's not saying it should be because you are a self-made martyr. A lot of people want to get martyred. And what I've noticed is, those people seldom get martyred. I think the Lord keeps them from getting martyred, not because He wants to care for them more than He would care for those who would be martyred. But perhaps you know the word for witness that's used in this passage that we're looking at in John today. It's, listen to it, martyria. You hear a word we get in English from that, martyria. It's the word martyr means witness. And witness means martyr. People were martyred not because they were good guys, they were martyred because they shared the gospel. And the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians, is a stumbling block to the Jew, and it is foolishness to the Greek. It just ticks both groups of people off. And the, the result is that when we witness to Christ in the power of the Spirit, people will get unhappy with us. The passage goes on to say in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. And with that having been read, let's go back to John again and complete looking at the verses in John 16.1. In verse 2 of John 16, they will make you outcast from the synagogue. And that was something no Jew wanted because all the meaningful contacts that a Jewish person had started in the synagogue. That person's work was related to somebody usually in that synagogue. Either people work for you or you work for people and you had those connections. And if you got excommunicated from the synagogue, you would be cut off from provision from other human beings in many cases. But an hour is coming, Jesus goes on to say, for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. When I read this, I thought 
about something that you remember. It happened on April the 15th, and the year was 2016, I believe. It was on the coast of Libya, and we witnessed to our horror and our grief 15 believers, male believers in Jesus Christ who had denounced Islam to follow Jesus as their Lord. Remember what happened to them? Their heads were cut off because they would not deny Christ. And that's an extreme example for sure. But all over the world this happens. During the reign of Idi Amin, you remember him, the butcher of Uganda. He was the emperor basically in his own mind of the world. He knows better now, that's for sure. During his reign, there were one half million people martyred because they followed Jesus Christ. One half million. Unbelievable. That happened. And what we know is that people die. In the 20th century, more Christians died than all the previous 19 centuries put together because of their identification with Jesus Christ. It costs to be a follower of Christ. It doesn't cost us that much here. But believe me, if things continue to move toward the end of time, we're going to be put in jeopardy too. And that's not to scare anybody. It's just wake up. We need to understand this. Barring a revival, and I'm not barring a revival. That's a sovereign act of God. But God have, has been clear about what must take place for a revival to occur. We're so hard on the country, our country, and the unbelieving population. Don't you think there's something wrong with that picture when you understand what the Scripture says? When God says, if my people, who would that be in America? The church of Jesus Christ. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, not humble other people, humble themselves and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And then I will forgive their sin. And then I will, what? Heal their land. The answer for us is to be witnesses to the lost people. The gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. We have dynamite in our hands, as it were, to dislodge people from the domain of darkness and participate with God's transferring them to the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is the kingdom of light through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will undergo insults by family and friends we might be excluded from the circle of society that we participated in and enjoyed, get the cold shoulder, ignored in public when people see it, it's as if they're staring right through you. Has that ever happened to you? 
because of your following Christ. They once were your best bud, and then now they don't even know you. You may be passed over for a promotion. You may be slandered. It may surprise you that in the early century or two of Christianity, the Christians were said to be cannibals. You know where that came from? The observance of the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And you know how the devil works. He distorts things, doesn't he? And so, word got out, they were cannibals. So, people wanted to do away with them. They were also accused of participating in orgies when they came to worship. Now, that was true of Bacchanalian practices and so many other false gods, Venus and others' practices, but it sure wasn't true of the church, was it? And the reason for their being called people who were involved in orgies is because they had a love feast before they observed the Lord's table. And that was the equivalent of today's potluck meal. They shared the food and then they took the elements of the Lord's Supper. You see how the devil distorts things? They were called house wreckers because when women would become, especially women, would become believers, then their husbands couldn't tolerate living with a woman like that and they left. And there again, the work of Satan was to put the finger at believers whose spouses who didn't come to Christ left. They weren't run off. Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 7, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever chooses to leave, is not forced out, or by passive aggression, the one who is a believer doesn't make life miserable for the person, then you're to stay with that person. We want to take some encouragement. This has been kind of a hard message probably to preach and also to hear. I want to suggest two passages of Scripture that you ponder, meditate on, memorize, if you will. The first one is Romans chapter 5. And in that chapter, the Bible says that we who know Christ revel in the hope of the glory of God. And not only the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God, but then listen to what follows. Therefore, we exalt, listen carefully, in our tribulations. What's wrong with this man, Paul? How can you rejoice in your tribulations? He goes on to answer the question. He anticipated some pushback on that. We exult in our trib tribulations knowing that tribulation produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. We need hope, don't we? This world is hopeless. And we need hope. And we need to be men and women who do exult in our tribulations. People think you're crazy. But let them think what they want to think. We know what the Word of God says and we believe it. And God uses it in our lives and in other people through us. And here, the last passage I would refer to, there are so many good ones. Find your own in the New Testament. This was in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Listen, I'm going to read it 
so I don't leave anything out. And let us run with endurance. Notice the usage of this word endurance or perseverance by the writer of Hebrews. It's not just one writer in the New Testament. It's virtually all of them. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes, now listen, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured this cross. It was hell for Jesus to die on the cross, literally. And when we are persecuted, it's not fun and games. But the way not to be cratered by persecution and back away from being a witness for Christ is keeping our eyes on Jesus. Drawing off of His faith, believing what Paul said about himself, which translates to be something that we can embrace also. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means he died to himself so that I no longer live. It not yet I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God is the literal translation of that. It's best spelled out for us in the King James Version, who for the joy set before Him endured this cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Dear brother, sister in Christ, this is our birthright by virtue of our being chosen by Christ and His coming to indwell us and the Holy Spirit giving us the power to live a life that will glorify God. The result of that is He will see us through any trial, any persecution, any tribulation. We must honor Him and humble ourselves before Him and believe that He is with us. And as He says, also in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask Your grace. We need it in every way, but probably no more than it comes to this matter of witnessing to You, Jesus, and then dealing with any kind of rejection, insult, exclusion, all those things, even physical harm, imprisonment, confiscation of property. That's what happened, we know, to the first century believers. Lord, help us not shy away from sharing You in a loving way, in the power of the Spirit. Use us to be change agents, to help this country not go down the drain, but be the agents of good news and use us as a generation to draw this country back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.